I'm Rick Dadarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. How do you confront crimes so monumental that they defy the imagination? How do you distance yourself from a past whose horrors you helped make possible? This was the dilemma for Soviet leaders following the death of Joseph Stalin. Nikita Khrushchev, Stalin's successor, decided that there was no way forward without criticizing Stalin. In his 1956 speech to the party elite, Khrushchev denounced Stalin's cult of personality and his abuse of power. Under Khrushchev, Stalin's body was removed from Lenin's mausoleum, and daily mention and reverence for Stalin in the state media came to an end. But criticism of the past had its limits. There was never any effort to identify or bring to justice the perpetrators of the repressions. The institutions that carried out Stalin's crimes were never overhauled or reformed. Not long after the publication of Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, a conservative backlash gained force that would eventually sweep Khrushchev from power. It is here that we pick up with the story of Remembering Stalin's Victims with Georgetown University professor Kathleen Smith. Even relatively moderate books within, you know, say a year after uh, Solzhenitsyn's publication were already not being accepted. And what the authors were hearing was, we've been told that there's like too many works have been published on this topic now. Like essentially, you know, enough has been said. It's it's finished. It's, we're, we're done with this topic. Um, and the writers were protesting. They're saying, wait a minute, you know, we're publishing hundreds of works about World War II every year. You can't say that, you know, one or two things about the purges. Now we're done with the purges. Um, But that really was the response because, again, conservatives are saying, if you keep digging into this topic, like, it's not healthy for our political system. And I think they had a good point, actually. Could you explain the term nihilism? That that comes up several times. It seems like that's the 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 patented conservative response yeah so the idea here was that um you know a good soviet citizen is committed to pursuing this bright future as we're you know making our steady inevitable way towards communism and so if you are instead, you know, questioning the achievements of the regime or always focusing on mistakes or shortcomings, that, yeah, that you're a nihilist and you're not part of, uh, you know, the productive forces uh, of society. So that was, a, that was a big insult to be a nihilist. It's so hard for me to um, listen to this and not filter that through the, the, the whole attack on critical race theory. That reaction, right? Let's let's not criticize everything. Exactly. And that's what I feel like, you know, for Khrushchev and Gorbachev as well. It's almost like they're trying to play this game of fractions. Like, okay, if like a sixteenth of our history was bad, like we can live with that. But one eighth, oh, that would already be a lot. A quarter, like how much negativity can people stand? And so, you know, frankly, we see this with Putin as well, that he doesn't deny, say, the Stalinist purges, but he wants people to think about and remember victory in World War II. That when you consider that yeah. overall proportion, right, that you have to focus on on these positive patriotic moments and not um, 
yeah, what they say, the black spots in the nation's past. That's definitely a direct carryover. To me, it seems like it's a direct carryover from the Soviet past. Let's focus on the positive here. <laughs> Keep it constructive. Remember what we've achieved. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not a formula unique to the Soviet Union. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, Spain after Francoism. Um, there's plenty of countries where they attempt to, and here I'll use the words of uh, one Polish politician from 1989, draw a thick line between the past and the present. So don't forget, don't forgive, but don't wallow in the past. And that ultimately is, is you know, I think what Gorbachev wished for and what Yeltsin in effect agrees with um, in terms of deciding how much attention from the state uh, to give to coming to terms with the past. So you get to the Brezhnev era. How much of a lid on this past is is shut? I mean, how how much of a re- of a reversal is this period in in terms of turning away from a more critical approach to to what happened during the Stalin years? Yeah, it is a huge uh, reversal of sorts. I mean, not a reversal in the sense that you know Stalin is somehow you know returned to being, you know, enthroned in this cult of personality, but definitely a reversal in terms of allowing uh, people to publish or speak publicly uh, about the history of repressions. So it's a time really of euphemisms. So maybe you would find, uh, let's say, in the encyclopedia, a biography of a famous scientist who was purged under Stalin and died in the gulag. So now that person's biography will be there. There won't be any accusations that they were anti-Soviet, but there also won't be any mention of their arrest or execution. It will just say, you know, died 1937. And so some people will draw their own conclusions from that, right? Um, but it, it won't be stated directly. And I think you mentioned also when it came to rehabilitations, wasn't there a dramatic change as well? Yes. So there's no more encouragement of applying, uh, encouraging people to apply uh, for rehabilitation. The number of those given out drops really dramatically. I don't know how much is that connected to people not applying anymore or whether people are being refused. We don't have the data to know that. Um, but again, it's, it's all done through this kind of internal signaling, you know, okay, rehabilitated people are not the fashion anymore. Talking about Stalin's purges is now uncomfortable. Um, So, you know, you get the message not to do it. It doesn't mean, right, we always use that metaphor of Pandora's box. It doesn't mean you can totally put the lid back on Pandora's box, right? Because knowledge has escaped. The party has condemned this. So the party never reverses that. They don't go back and say, well, actually, Stalin was awesome. He didn't do anything bad. Um, they just don't talk about it. It becomes a taboo of sorts. What I appreciated, at least in the, your discussion of Brezhnev, is often you think of that period as the freeze, right? But you mentioned that there's actually much more going on, right? This de-Stalinization never really died. It just takes on a new form, right? It uh, it's represented by by new groups. There are new labels that are used to describe it. Um, 
uh, and new means of, 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 of getting the message out. I mean, destalinization does become part of the dissident movement, um, which is really a movement that, you know, takes off in the late 60s and into the 1970s. And the dissident movement had many issues, including freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, etc. Um, but uh, the desire for historical justice or you know, having the tragedy of the purges as a lesson for why there's a need for more openness, more democratization, etc. That is definitely always a part uh, of the dissident movement, um, even as they, you know, get wrapped up in contemporary human rights issues uh, as well. So how do they get the word out if the state controls the media? Yeah, so um, first of all, I should say there's always a big oral culture uh, in the Soviet Union, and I think in, in lots of repressive regimes, that is that you have things that you say in your kitchen in circles with your friends um, that you would never write down or say in a public place. Uh, and that's definitely true in this time period. Some people say that the best thing Khrushchev did for the dissident movement was he supported the construction of uh, these new uh, sort of prefab housing that created like cheap apartments, but where people could get out of communal apartments and have their own apartment. And once you have your own apartment, right, you feel safer. You can invite your friends over and, you know, I don't know, read bad books or talk about things you're not supposed to talk about. So there's a whole sort of culture of informality that starts in the period. And then the other major thing um, is what the Russians call samizdat, so it comes from the word Sam, which means yourself, and then Izdat, which is like an abbreviation for publisher. Uh, and some clever fellow who, you know, made his own book of poetry that he knew was not going to accept, get accepted by a state publisher. Um, and he drew his own title page and he wrote, uh, instead of like writing like state publishing house, he wrote Sam Izdat, published, you know, by, by oneself. And this becomes a big trend that is that works that are not getting past the censors, start to get retyped and circulated uh, among intellectuals in Moscow and other big cities. Uh, And uh, a new trend develops of smuggling these works out to the West and having them published in the West. And ultimately, that's what gets uh, Solzhenitsyn expelled from the Soviet Union, is that he smuggles the Gulag Archipelago out to the West, where it is translated into French and English and so forth. Uh, And when he allows, he kind of triggers that publication in the West, that's the final straw um, for Brezhnev and the Soviet authorities who strip him of his citizenship and put him on a plane uh, uh, to the West. So again, vegetarian era compared to the Stalin era, um, but for Solzhenitsyn, a huge punishment because he did not want to be separated from his natural audience. And that's not the only form of punishment, correct? There are other, I mean, you, you really ran some serious, you took some serious risks if you became involved with this whole underground literature. Yes. So you risked uh, being fired from your job. You risked uh, going to prison. Uh, there were, yeah, there were real political and legal consequences uh, for sharing Samizdat, for producing it. And being committed, right? Being committed to institutions, so institutionalized. Yes, there was also forced psychiatric detention that was used against uh, people in the human rights movement. 
And it kind of created this never ending cycle. So, uh, you know, let's say you were upset that your friend is arrested for, you know, circulating Samizdat and you write a letter of protest um, and try and get that circulated among your friends or published in the West. Often things were sent to the the U.S.-run or Western-run radio stations, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, that broadcast in Russian back into the Soviet Union. So let's say you go that route. Well, all right, you've defended your friend, but guess what? Now you're a target. Now you're going to suffer. Now your friends are going to write a letter. So, you know, it just, it was like this self-reinforcing cycle of repressions um, as you tried to, you know, defend people's right to free expression. But essentially what's what the purpose was to just expose the state, right? Expose the state, the injustices. I mean, they could be the past or they could be ongoing things, right? Ongoing things that you want to uh, get the message out either through underground literature or out to, to Western media. Exactly. And so it's a way to inform your fellow citizens, or at least some of them, to reach them and share this information with them. Uh, and it was also kind of a lever of shame against the Soviet Union. Um, it's kind of a whole separate topic. We probably don't want to go too deeply into it today. But with the Helsinki Accords um, in the 1970s, you know, the Soviet Union signed on formally to this basket of human rights provisions. And so then the dissidents could say, look, Soviet leaders, you signed this treaty. We're pointing out to you that you're violating this treaty. And we're going to make that information clear to the rest of the treaty signatories. So we're sending this, you know, appeal or this documentation to America and France and Czechoslovakia and all the other signatories. Um, So they used a sort of legalistic approach to try and push the Soviet Union to live up to its own laws and its its own uh, international commitments. Again, moving ahead chronologically, so Brezhnev dies, you have a succession of, 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 of elder Soviet leaders who follow him, quickly die in office, and then Gorbachev becomes the youngest leader since Stalin, uh, comes to power in the mid-1980s. And he seems to open the door to a discussion of the Stalinist past. Was that ever his intention? I don't think it was specifically his intention. Um, He starts his uh, reform process uh, with this word that, you know, kind of passes into English, perestroika, which means rebuilding. And his focus there was really on uh, kind of rescuing the Soviet economy. But to do that, he knew that he had to really re-engage the public, get people excited about the possibility for better living standards, but also a less fear-driven, you know, model of governance. And so he did talk about creating socialist pluralism. Uh, Another key word he used was glossness, which means openness. So he opened up the media to an extent. Uh, His goal was to allow constructive criticism and constructive feedback. Um, But, you know, each of those kind of cracks in the system, it allows people to talk about what they want to talk about. And I'll say here that some of the first uh, discussion clubs and informal groups that form under Gorbachev are what he wanted. They're people who want to talk about how can we reform socialism and make it more democratic, more idealistic. 
Some are on topics that are, I assume, of no interest to Gorbachev. So that one of the first big informal associations, as they called these new clubs, was like the fans of the Spartak soccer team that wanted to have a club. Like, I don't think Gorbachev was that interested in that. Uh, and then some were people who had, you know, some kind of social concern. So there's a big anti-nuclear power movement uh, after the Chernobyl accident. Uh, and then one of the groups, the one that I write about in my book, uh, Memorial, is specifically dedicated to the idea of commemorating uh, the victims of Stalin's repressions and also, you know, educating people about them, gathering research about them, um, you know, really doing what hadn't happened under Khrushchev, really opening that Pandora's box. Uh, again, he wants to use... Uh the general public uh, for uh, in an instrumental way or right, to put pressure on the system for change. Um, he makes possible the emergence of a civil society, but at the same time, he's not really authorizing it, right? He's not really allowing people to organize legally. I think what we see is that he wants, again, this veneer of, of civil society. He wants engagement from people, but kind of on his terms. And both Gorbachev, but more importantly, local officials don't really know what to do when they get this grassroots activism. Uh, and so I spend a, probably too much time in the book talking about how these activists in different cities across the Soviet Union would start to come together and talk about what they wanted to do, but to do anything they had to have relations with the officials because, and again, here we have to think of this is not only like a totalitarian political system, it's also a state-owned economy. There's no auditorium that you can rent. There's no way that you can open a bank account as an organization. There's no legal framework for doing that. So if you want to like pass the hat and collect money, you know, and you're going to publish a brochure about Stalin's, you know, repressions, First of all, you'd have to find, you know, a way to keep that money. Then you'd have to find a state publisher that would work with you, even though you're an unknown person. And maybe you'd want to have an article in the newspaper to get people to come forward with like their stories or something. But the state-owned newspaper is not sure it's allowed to deal with you. So there's a lot of negotiation and back and forth um, that takes place in the mid-80s to try and slowly, you know, push this topic forward. And Gorbachev, in this time, he pays lip service um, to to Glasnost, um, but I wouldn't say that he personally took a particular interest uh, in commemorating the victims of Stalinism. It sounded like he wasn't really that interested in history at all. Maybe, like you said, maybe he had dealt with his own trauma, his own family. He had moved on. Uh, he wanted to use public debate constructively, but to me, it seemed like he opened the door to this past and he was almost just surprised, surprised by the, the groundswell of, 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 of emotions. Uh, it seemed like that came out in the press first, right? that there was just a lot of discussion and investigation that, 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 that he was still struggling to keep up with. That's absolutely true. And I would say that it really hits him most strongly, uh, not in Russia per se, um, but in dealing with the Baltic states and other national republics. So the Soviet Union was a federal state. It consisted of republics of which Russia, the Russian Republic was the largest. Um, 
But the Baltic states were territories that the Soviet Union had sort of forcibly annexed after World War II. Uh, and there, as they start to open up about the past, you know, it feeds into this uh, history that these were independent states um, that were occupied. Um, in fact, they go back to the pre-World War II moment when um, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed between Soviet and German foreign ministers had a secret protocol that divided up spheres of influence and gave the Baltic states uh, to the Soviet sphere. So all of that becomes fodder for pushing for uh, independence. And that's a constant distraction to Gorbachev. Um, And I would say it really, you know, overwhelms the other kinds of civil society challenges that he has to deal with um, in the 1980s. And as we know, the Soviet Union does in fact, fall apart. And those are independent states, at least for the present. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the major outcomes. And there too, you could say like, why didn't Gorbachev know that? Why didn't he anticipate it? But, you know, he didn't live in that part of the country. He wasn't educated about that history. That was another thing that people didn't talk about. So, you know, maybe it's not so surprising that he was unprepared uh, to deal with it. And then you have this same back and forth, right, between liberals, people who want to push it further, and people who want to shut the door on this criticism. of Has any of that changed from the Khrushchev years, that conservatives who are worried that the entire system is going to be discredited, and uh, people who want to move in more of a liberal reformist direction who really want to, 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 to talk about as much as possible? So the fundamental distinction does not change. So it's still uh, political conservatives who are uh, less enthralled with the idea of talking about negative aspects of history. The one change I would say is that with Glasnost and the ability to be more open, um, we also see a nationalistic tinge uh, in these discussions. So alongside political conservatives, you also have... Uh, Russian nationalists who see uh, a lot of this historical talk as sort of a, you know, degradation uh, of national history. And so they also kind of push back on that. I mean, they have some aspects like they'll, they're willing to talk about, say, you know, how the Russian Orthodox Church suffered disproportionately uh, under communism. But they also float all these conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism. Semitic theories and so forth. Um, and that's something that you, the Soviet Union was, was supposed to be, you know, a multinational state where ethnicity didn't matter. So you, you couldn't talk about that openly in the Brezhnev area either. Um, but under Gorbachev, you can. Gorbachev opens the door to, uh, to an explosion of, of clubs and organizations. He doesn't allow them to form in a legal way. And they've got their hamstrung and dependent upon the party. But there is this explosion of civil society, really, uh, in, in the 1980s. Uh, and, and Memorial seems to be a part of that. And history is, is, is a huge part of that. So it's, it's, to me, it seems like there's this dem- democratization of, of, of participation and trying to understand the past that takes shape in the 1980s, that, that you have all kinds of people, it goes beyond intellectuals, right? It goes beyond just historians, that you've got lots of ordinary people, amateurs who are getting involved. 
and, and memorials a part of that process. Yeah, I think amateur is a, is a great word. Um, you know, you have people who are not historians, right, but who become swept up by this topic, some because they have uh, family histories that they want to explore, and others just because they're sort of bowled over by the amount that they didn't know, you know, that they're reading these, you know, they're gaining this knowledge for the first time, and they can't believe that they had never heard about this. Um so I would say that what makes one of the things that makes Memorial interesting as an organization is, as you said, it's very democratic. And I mean that not just because they supported political democratization, which Memorial Societies did, but because of the way it was organized. So it was always a decentralized movement. It was activists in different towns and villages coming together, forming their own, you know, sort of small groups. And then they might communicate with this central group uh, in Moscow, but it was never a top-down organization. And that allowed for a tremendous diversity in terms of focus and activity, right? If you're a group in, say, Varkuta, one of the, one of the so-called capitals of the Gulag, right? Um, you may be interested in looking for mass graves or... Uh, you know, erecting statues uh, to what happened there. If you're in uh, Moscow, you know, maybe you want to work in the state archives. Or if you are in another place, maybe the big issue where you are um, with your group is school children. And what you want to do is organize exhibits and contests and activities to educate young people. So there was just a lot of room uh, for these amateurs or volunteers to choose the focus that they that they wanted, what worked for their group. Uh, and that is a huge contrast to the way that things were organized in the Soviet Union. And there are lots of creative things that are happening, right? I think you mentioned that there are trials that are going on. It spreads into the schools. You have uh, these new holidays, commemorative holidays that uh, that are invented. Yeah. So uh, again, we can see this really grassroots efforts taking part. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's a teacher who decides that, hey, we could use the trial format to talk about uh, historical events from the past. You know, let's, let's, let's have a trial of Stalin. You know, what would that look like? Um, in other cases, it's uh, exhibition. So in Moscow, very early activity was they created what they called the Week of Conscience. They got access to uh, a uh, small uh, club, like a workers club, and they just brought in all kinds of material, letters that people had sent to Memorial with their family stories, photos of victims, um, examples of Samizdat and so forth, and like plastered the walls <laughs> of this hall. Uh, and one thing they did was they put out like a crude sort of wooden wheelbarrow, the kind that was used in forced labor camps. And the visitors to this exhibit just began to like empty their wallets and like throw money uh, into this wheelbarrow, you know, that they wanted their donation to go towards creating a monument uh, for Stalin's victims. Now, I should say, despite all this enthusiasm, uh, no monument to Stalin's victims is built uh, during the Gorbachev years. There is, um, in Moscow, the Memorial Society places a boulder 
from Solovki, the first Soviet concentration camp, uh, which is up in the north near Arkhangelsk. And it has a little plaque uh, to the victims of totalitarianism. But that was intended as sort of a, a placeholder. That's where they were going to make this, this monument once they collected all of this. Yes. And that is still there uh, in the center of Moscow, across from the building that housed the Soviet secret police and that still houses the Russian uh, federal security services today. So it's a bit of a reproach, supposed mm-hmm. to be a reproach uh, to the secret police. Which compared with what they, I mean, they eventually come up with a wall of sorrow, but that location where the Solovetsky stone was, is, right, would have been a much more central spot, a much more meaningful place, right? Yes. Uh, and the initial ideas that arose in the Perestroika period, uh, often, you know, when people wrote in or drew their ideas, they wanted to put this either like next to Lenin's mausoleum on Red Square uh, or in front of this famous uh, secret police building. Uh, and I really think of it as it was like a moment of, of trying to get symbolic justice. The Wall of Sorrow, which was opened just a few years ago in Moscow um, uh, and uh, inaugurated with a speech by Putin, has a really different vibe. Uh, it is about, uh, as the name suggests, expressing you know remorse, spare for these negative aspects of the Soviet past. Um, but it does not really reproach or call out any perpetrators. And indeed, Putin's speech at this um, commemoration, he does list many of those aspects of repressions that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Um, But he does it all in the passive voice. These are all just things that happen. He doesn't ascribe blame to anyone. And so it, it kind of undercuts the notion that these were state-sponsored repressions, which is what I think the liberals behind Memorial were were trying to convey with their goals of commemoration. That is, they didn't just want to have like a surrogate grave, a place to go and cry. They wanted to act as a catalyst for people to think about, you know, how was this allowed? Why was everyone quiet? Why was there no protest? And what can we do so that it's not repeated? That civic message is too dangerous for Putin's Russia, and you won't find it in this new monument. And you might even ask, well, why did Putin even agree to this? I think, you know, just like past leaders, he would really like to be done with this topic. And so by making these monument, this monument, he can finally say, look, we did it, right? We commemorated the victims. Done. Subject closed. Now we don't need Memorial anymore. Their project is finished. But, I mean, to me, it seems like, I mean, at the root of this whole history of de-Stalinization is trying to seek some form of justice, right? And how can you ever put the system on a more democratic footing if there's never any accountability, never any uh, effort to, to, to work through what actually happened? Right? No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that... I think this is a very cyclical process. And what we see happening right now in Russia, this new clampdown and sort of like very, you know, hurrah, patriotic uh, type uh, propaganda in the public sphere, that's not the end of the story, right? It's it's going to come back. And in fact, 
many liberal Russians have fled Russia at the moment after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And they're asking themselves kind of similar questions like, how did this happen? Who's to blame? Are we to blame? What was our role in, you know, not uh, pushing back as the system became less and less democratic? So those questions about, you know, accountability and maybe even historical passivity of the Russian people, uh, those are still really relevant questions, and they will come back. But your point, too, about Memorial is that this is a mass movement and maybe the best chance at, at finding some form of justice, of, uh, of really having an honest accounting of the past. And I think your point is, well, it just comes along too early. It comes along at the wrong time. And maybe if it had come along a little bit later, 1991, maybe, maybe things would have been different, right? That it, uh, it was in a context that, that really worked against it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the sort of disintegration of the Soviet Union and the, the, the Gorbachev's loss of control over the reform process uh, kind of pushed Memorial to the side. Uh, I'll tell you that when I went uh, to Russia in January 1991 to do field work for my uh, dissertation uh, about coming to terms with the past, which ultimately would become uh, the basis for this book, uh, I met so many Russian liberals who all kind of like sort of like wrinkled their noses up when I told them my topic. And they said, oh, you know, but Memorial, that's not really what's important right now. What's important right now is political parties. You should study political parties. Now, it's very frustrating, right, as an academic to be told that you're not studying the right thing and so forth. And, you know, I persisted with my topic, but I could see what they meant. That is that some of the people who had been key in forming Memorial, that was like a first issue for them. But they had moved on. They were running for parliament. They were supporting the radical Boris Yeltsin. They were, you know, finding new issues that were more engaging to them. And in a way, you know, Memorial's moment in the spotlight was already fading um, in 1991. Now, you could think like, but they'll get a second chance because we know that uh, the Soviet Union falls apart and Gorbachev is ousted uh, and that, you know, a new sort of would-be democratic Russia arises. So there is a chance, I think, that Memorial could have had its moment. Uh, There is a big law passed by the parliament that expands rehabilitation that gives more of a definition to what it means to have been a victim of political repression, etc. But the new Yeltsin regime has its own pressing problems. They have to, you know, dismantle the planned economy and build a market system. They have to come up with a new, you know, uh, structure after the, the crumbling of the Soviet Union. So I would say that Yeltsin also didn't really have the attention span or big interest uh, in dealing with the past. Now, personally, I think that's a mistake. I think that he kind of missed a chance to create a new patriotic base for a democratic Russia. And that would have involved, you know, looking for pieces of a usable past, a history that would have supported uh, democratic Russia. Um, And he didn't he didn't really do that. So, but not to toot my horn too much, but that was the topic of my second book, which looked at myth-making in the Yeltsin years. So I did kind of trace that story through the Yeltsin period. Because you mentioned, well, it was harder for 
it was harder for the Soviet Union to deal with the past because they're too implicated in it. Right? There's too much continuity. But when you get to Yeltsin, he could have drawn that sharp line between the Russian Federation and the Soviet Union. He could have used that as an opportunity to put his his government on a new footing. Yeah, and he fails to do it. And, you know, I have thought very hard about why that's the case. Uh, I think uh, partly it's a shortcoming on his part that he himself was someone also who had risen up in the Communist Party system, but had become profoundly disillusioned and gone through this transformation where he became uh, a Democrat of sorts. (laughs) I'm not saying he was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And again, he assumed that the Russian people had gone through a similar process, and so maybe that they didn't need to be sort of decommunized. Uh, And then the other thing is, I think that he and his advisors thought that like a heavy-handed tactic towards propagandizing and rewriting history books, that was a feature of totalitarian rule. And they weren't totalitarians. So why should they do that, you know? Uh, And they kind of left a vacuum that was then filled in part by conservatives and nationalists um, and ultimately forced the state to return to kind of thinking about what was a national idea, what holidays were important to commemorate and so forth. But by that time, it was already a democracy that was pretty wobbly um, uh, that engaged in that process. And so again, you see the revival of say the World War II uh, history as, you know, the essential core moment about which people in the Soviet Union can feel good. Now, I will say that Yeltsin, the liberals, tried to tell a story that Russia won the war despite Stalin and not because of Stalin. But that nuance, I think, was kind of lost um, in the telling. Well, my, I didn't know if there was debate about Yeltsin. Is he someone who was trying to move the country in a more democratic or in a more authoritarian direction? You know, do you do you look at that era as a missed opportunity or paving the way for Putin? Yeah. So I will say that I think Yeltsin was a failed Democrat. I think he had good intentions, um, but he also, you know, kind of like didn't do some of the hard things, right? Like, why didn't he totally remake the secret police? Like, why didn't he just close that down, start from scratch? He didn't do it, right? I'm sure there was a lot of pressure on him to, you know, cling to stability in some spheres so that they could work on economic change. But now when I look back on the Yeltsin period, I think, okay, there was a totally free press. There were independent publishers. You could organize any kind of group that you wanted, There was multiple competing television channels. There were elections that were uh, not perfect, but largely free and fair. All of that is absent from today's Russia. So maybe that's partly because he he made a bad choice, you know, in picking Putin. But I think the fault really lies much more with Putin, ultimately, uh, than with Yeltsin. I mean, do you put part of the blame on the West? I mean, is it the West's responsibility that they didn't help Russia manage the transition more effectively? And like you said, that there were bigger concerns for Yeltsin. There was so much restructuring and and, uh, so much instability that had to be dealt with. I mean, the West definitely could have done more, especially financially, to ease some of the initial hardships of reform. But I definitely think that, you know, Creating democracy is something that has to be done by the people of that country. 
And the U.S., of course, should support democracy, help civil society, you know, promote free elections. But ultimately, you know, the responsibility has to be, you know, with the citizens of that country and the leaders of that country. So we could have done more, but I don't think we could have, you know, guaranteed democracy in Russia by by any stretch. And you mentioned the situation, you know, in 1993, where this conflict between the conservative parliament and Yeltsin ends up with Yeltsin's, you know, calling out the army to fire on the parliament. Like, obviously, that's not a great solution to a problem. It's not really a democratic resolution of the problem. But in that moment, right, Yeltsin kind of has another chance. There's going to be new elections. There's going to be a new constitution. But instead of convening a proper constitutional, you know, assembly to write a new constitution for Russia, he writes one that fits that moment, which is a very heavily presidential uh, system, you know, that that Putin exploits. So there's lots of blame to go around uh, for why Russia didn't become a democracy. Um, but uh, I do think that if Yeltsin had embraced into his initial administration more people who came up from the grassroots and these various democratic movements, uh, he would have had a better chance because they would have pressured him, maybe not for public trials, but at least to have more replacement of personnel within the state. And that does not happen. And that's the big difference between Russia and Eastern Europe. And maybe for the Russian people, I mean, you come through uh, 70 years of uh, authoritarian rule, and maybe there's a much greater interest in order and stability than looking into the past, right? So if you go through a turbulent period, that anything is better than that. You're better to return to something familiar and and, uh, reassuring. Absolutely. And honestly, you know, I think the biggest source of Putin's popularity was uh, a healthy economy, in part due to rising oil prices, but also a restoration of stability, uh, bringing order to the state institutions, you know, cracking down on certain forms of crime. Um, And in in Russia today, too, you know, the fear of chaos uh, is very strong, very strong, reasonably so. so it's, it's definitely a balancing act. You know, I started studying uh, Memorial, as I mentioned, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And uh, I can't step away from the story of Memorial without noting that for the next 30 years, they became in many ways a very professional organization. They stayed decentralized, but the main uh, Moscow branches uh, were extremely active in defending human rights uh, and also in exploring Russian history, doing all kinds of educational outreach. So the fact that they uh, recently were closed on orders uh, of the Russian courts um, is really, I think it's a very tragic ending uh, to a story that's about destalinization and about an attempt uh, to democratize. But um, I don't want this to be an obituary for Memorial because uh, even though the formal organization is now, you know, unable to fulfill some of its functions, the people behind Memorial are still there. And there's a new generation that has taken up this topic and is, you know, creating graphic novels about Andrei Sakharov and uh, 
exploring history uh, in their own way. So I would just say, watch this space. The story of Memorial is not over. Uh, it probably won't be me that writes the next book about it, but hopefully someone else is going to keep following this piece of Russia's memory politics. Soviet leaders never resolved the dilemma of how to confront the memory of Stalin's repressions. Allowing for a more open discussion of the past triggered a conservative backlash that swept both Khrushchev and Gorbachev from power. Boris Yeltsin had the opportunity to put his regime on a stronger democratic footing by drawing a sharp line between the Russian Federation and the abuses of its Soviet predecessor. But instead, he left repressive institutions intact and strengthened the powers of the presidency. Putin's ability to exploit Yeltsin's legacy and to respond to Russian concerns about instability, corruption, and economic turmoil brought an end to Russia's brief experiment with democracy. Despite Putin's tightened grip on power and the banning of prominent human rights organizations like Memorial, Kathleen Smith remains optimistic about the future. She points out that the memory work of Memorial lives on in the digital realm. She believes that Russians, especially those who fled the country after the invasion of Ukraine, are already reflecting on what was lost. She believes that a younger generation of tech-savvy Russians will use the new resources of the internet and social media to move their country towards a freer, less repressive, and more inclusive future. I would once again like to thank Kathleen Smith for so generously sharing her time and thoughts with me. I would also like to thank Kathleen for sharing photos, which I've used on the podcast social media platforms. Next month, we'll turn to the story of the Civil War in El Salvador. We'll learn from Professor Eric Ching from Furman University how years after the end of this bloody conflict, the memory wars continue to rage in the personal accounts of the former participants. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory. <laughs>